there are improvement works ahead. So this train will terminate at the next station. Fake news, fake news. Hey, 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 you know what the cool thing is? Every time I do this, like like that, it reminds me of one thing, man. One thing only, Montel Jordan. Oh, yeah. This, <laughs> this is how we do. Yeah. Do you remember, um, oh, was that club on Commercial Road? Uh, Evos? Yeah, do I remember Evos? Yeah, they played R&B. <sighs> um, I remember going there. Someone said to me, I've got tickets to Montel Jordan. Do you want to go? And all I knew was, you know, this is how we do. I'm like, no. Nah. And I just remember, like, he was up on stage, and he was rocking the Nevo crowd like he was at Madison Square Garden. Like, he was lit up. Mm. It was, like, 2005, six, like, mm. you know, heyday. And I just remember him grabbing the mic and going, like, he's doing these ones. It's like, you know, there's no no um, uh, lip syncing, like, none of that shit tonight. Like, this is real. I just remember him in his, like, silver sort of vesty suit thing. He was a machine, though. And then he ended up going full Christian, I think. Did he? Yeah, because he was cheating on his missus for a while. Standards. You know, as you do in that industry. And um, I think she found out about it and they had some big, you know, she kicked up a fuss. So then he had to go all nice and easy. They all become um, industry. preachers. Baptist preachers. <laughs> <laughs> what, like DMX? Yeah. DMX was full preacher. He was, yeah. but he also loved to preach the word of crack. I know, that actually didn't make sense <laughs> to me, man. How could you be so, like, semental, but be a preacher on the other side? I don't... I think you have to go through the um, the darkness to see, like, really what matters sometimes. I know, but he didn't... It's not like he actually... He, that's what he died from. He'd get off. Like, as soon as he'd go to prison, he'd be all right. Yeah. Like, so he go in, get clean, and come back out, and be back on it. Yeah. He was full institutionalized. Mm. Which is sad, really. Of course he is, man. It was tra- shit. Because he wasn't a bad sort of head. No, the, the guy had soul, man. He was deep. No, DMX, that's been a year. Mm. That's crazy. I can't believe it. I, I did a podcast on my own, like, days after that happened. And I just remember, like, signing off with, rest in peace, DMX. I, I actually can't believe it's been a year since, you know what I mean? It really messed with me, to be honest, because when I was going through my recovery, that was one of the things that I was listening to the most, like, his prayers. Really? I'm not really a religious person, but it just appealed to me. Yeah. You know, like a, a person going from like the worst part of their life and just asking for that like that little bit of strength. Yeah. You know what I mean? And um, it really resonated. Yeah, yeah. So when he ended up dying last year, it was it was almost surreal. Yeah. No, it was. It was like Michael Jackson dying. Or Chester Bennington. Yeah. Even that was out of the left field. That... That totally shook me too, man. You reckon? Oh, yeah. Breaking the habit. I mean, breaking the habit for me was yeah. metaphorical and, you know, yeah. it's a real I life. Chester Bennington sort of hit because at that point I wasn't a fan of their new music and I'd seen Linkin Park live at Soundwave 2013, I think. Mm. I've actually got a photo on my wall from that day and I remember it because it was like the last proper music festival I went to. Yeah. Because after that, I moved into my apartment, you know, stress of life starts hitting and then just shit started going south <laughs> but i remember that that specifically um kill switch engage were playing metallica was headlining cool. i think yeah the offspring, offspring were there <laughs> what a lineup yeah it was it was actually a crazy bullet for my valentine were there i know i'm just uh, um wasn't sl- anthrax was there jesus christ that's Dude, <laughs> i'm telling what? you and i remember i went to kill switch 
and I had one of my mates who knew who Killswitch were, and I had mm. one of my mates who, who I worked with who didn't know who they were. And I said, he goes, well, I want to see Lincoln Park. I go, well, okay, I'll tell you what. Come with me to Killswitch. I'll come with you to Lincoln Park, and then we'll both go to Metallica. And I remember going to Lincoln Park. And remember, this is me as in, like, not being a fan of new shit and not having listened to any Lincoln Park in years. But they basically did Hybrid Theory plus a few Meteora tracks. Yes. And it was like, they put, fuck. They put on a good show. Yeah, I was, I was clapping at the end of it. I'm like, man, like, for a band that I knew when I was in high school, having seen Hybrid Theory album, you know, like, we saw Chester Bennington from start to finish. Yeah, man. You know what I mean? Michael Jackson was sort of like established before I was born. Like I'm dancing to the Thriller album at you know five, but the album came out in the early eighties. Yeah, it was kind of it didn't really resonate with us. It I was mean, more like you, 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 something you listened to and it was cool. You know what I mean? Yeah, but Michael it was like Jackson. the first Michael Jackson was like the first celebrity death that really freaked over the whole world. Like Princess Di did, or you know whatever. But Chester Bennington was like we saw him as a teenager when we were teenagers. Yeah, man. You know what I mean? Basically, grew up with them. Um, yeah. Chester Bennington's music. I remember my bungalow with, you know, doing dips <laughs> within the end playing like, ah! <laughs> Just that aggression that he had in his voice, you know? That's really weird, man, because that's a name I've not thought about in a decade plus. We just reconnected recently. Really? Yeah. Okay, this is tripping me out too, because as soon as I saw you, I remembered the one thing I remember about you from the get-go was your, your voice. Even, uh, hang on, how old are you now, man? 43 in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I'm 37 in a couple of weeks. And I remember I was talking to my old man before and he said, who you have on the podcast? I said, oh, a guy, I go, I, I've actually, I haven't seen him in like dog's years, but I've known him since I was about 15. And he goes, how old is he? I go, probably a couple of years older than me. So yeah, mm. about, yeah, a couple, around the same, it's around the same sort of thing. And um, I still remember even then when I met you, I was about 15. So that would have made you about 20, 21. Around about, yeah. And I still remember you sounding like, Someone's uncle <laughs> at a reception hall. Oh, you know what no. I mean? Like I don't if, know whether it's a good thing or a no, bad no, thing. If you, were, if you were with a mate and he was introducing you to his dad, and if you're like, oh, by his mate, Dim, it's like, yes, they're going to do. I remember that voice being the most distinct thing. And dude, as someone that loves doing voiceovers, I still remember your voice was like the gravitas of all. Even at like that age, man, at 20, you literally had a voice that like punched. It was the best. I look like the Greek Barry White. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ex- like, oh, yeah. It's like Karas. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, who was the other guy? I got my Divi. Oh, the dude, if you want to think of old wog singers, yeah, you that- had Kara, you had Mela. They're all in the same vein. Mm-hmm. Like that. I think my Didi did that um, that album with Mitropano and oh, Bassi. That's it. As soon as you say Mitropano, it's done. Feiko, you know Every what I mean? Every old Greek just loses it was, their what was, shit. What was it called? It was Parhikito Zebekiko. It was just like the greatest Zebekiko tracks sung by three of the machines of Greek music. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was actually explaining it to someone the other day about why Greek, why I rate Greek music as high as I do, right? Mm. And I don't mean the pop shit. I'm talking about like the late guy, uh, like the heavy, yeah. you know. And it's like uh, that people don't understand why it's that staunch like the Greeks. I said, listen, you got to understand something. This is music that makes grown men cry. Definitely. <laughs> and grown men will come together literally to embrace whatever piece of music it is, and that will, it'll make them dance and cry at the same time. It's cathartic. Yeah, it is. Because no matter what's going on in your life, right? Like that song, in, let's say, let's pull one out of thin air, right? Like Dalavadika. Uh, oh, yeah. What a hard track. Yeah. Right? 100%. And it's, 
you know, whatever's going on in your life, like what's happening in that song at that moment is like a hundred times worse. <laughs> so you're like, you kind of feel not too bad about yourself, right? But at the same time, you're resonating with the singer, like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, bring the scotch. Yeah. <laughs> Light a dart, you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm more Dude, my bosses are all in Greece, and um, one of them said that the only manager I have here is he's Greek from Greece, so we're talking. And it's a constant battle, you know, between Greek Australian and Greek of Greece oh, in yeah. Australia. I get it. And I remember the other day he'd asked me some question, he asked me about something to do with work or something, and I made a comment, and he's like, see, now you're a real Greek. I go, why? He goes, because you got everything going up, but you're still struggling. Like, you're still <laughs> oh, hard. Oh. Like, and I still remember a mate of mine once saying to me, it's always an answer like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you just remind me of my folks. Like, you ask them, hey, post pass, hey, post the piano. Yeah. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> Life's not that bad, man. You're, you're retired. Just yeah. chill out. You're retired. You've got nothing to worry about. <laughs> ah, you know what I mean? Ah, <laughs> Yeah. When they retire, they start talking about how hard they actually work to get there. It's like, oh, man. It's just embrace it that you're alive. Especially my folks, right? Because both of them are kind of disabled at the moment. Yeah. Right? They've gone through a couple of health problems. Yeah. Self-caused, oh. right? At work. And they're like, maybe you're just not working smart enough. Yeah. You know, like, sclero work is... Uh, dude. I get into this with the old man and my mum, both of them, man. I've had the, I've had the rounds with them, and I've said, you, I don't doubt that you didn't work hard, but you didn't work smart. You didn't work to your own benefit. You yeah, stuck to right. your stubborn ways, and you thought that was going to be the outcome. And don't tell me that you didn't know, because there was definitely other people floating around you that became successful off working smarter, not harder. That's right. And then they're the, usually the people that you criticise at family barbecues because like, oh, they've had it easy. <laughs> no, they just worked smarter, not harder. That's exactly right. You know what I mean? It's amazing, isn't it? They end up identifying with this whole um, old school way of thinking that if you don't bust your ass, like you're not working, right? Yeah. You're not, you know, productive. Yeah. If you're physically got calluses on your hands. You're right. Yeah. Like you need to be physically broken. You need to look like you've gone through shit and you need to be chain smoking a hundred darts. <laughs> that means hard work. I remember 22 years old, man, 23, I'd be sleeping after doing, what, 12-hour security shifts, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I forgot about that, the security games. Yeah, man. And have the old lady come in, go to work. Like, it's my day off. You did the levies, like, because she was up at 5 a.m., I had to be up at 5 a.m., yeah. right? Like, okay, cool. So just to <laughs> make them happy, I'd, like, I'd get dressed, leave the house. As soon as they leave, I'd come back. <laughs> <laughs> I actually said it I said it to the old man specifically. I said, in the, in the whole vein of, you know, smarter, not harder, and I said, I don't doubt that you didn't work hard. But you got to remember something. You worked from, you know, f- when I was a kid, it felt to me that my old man was starting work at like 1 a.m. Mm. Because it was he got up early. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he got up when it was pre-dawn. So in my mind, he got up in the middle, like midnight, and he would come home. At night time. Yeah. <laughs> or he'd come home at three in the Arvo. Like, I'd be finishing school, and he'd be on his way back or just rocking up or something. And to me, that was like hard work. But that was the end of work for him because he was just a, you know, hands. He wasn't, um, wasn't a manager or anything. He didn't work in an office. Yeah, yeah. And it was only when I became an adult when I actually realized, like, hang on, man. He did an average day's work. And in his industry, he was a butcher man. So he worked hard. I'm not saying he didn't. But I actually said it to him point blank. I said, I don't doubt that you didn't work hard. But you've got to remember, you worked Monday to Friday. Saturday, you'd go in, and I'm pretty sure that was like a cashy sort of run, you yeah. know, like businesses like butcher shops that always pay cash, a certain portion of your wage, 
and he'd work till like one o'clock. So he'd do like a half day on Saturday and he'd still have the energy to cut the grass and then go for a bike ride or some <laughs> shit. I go, I work seven days a week and I work from like 8 a.m. and I'm still sending emails at midnight Yeah, if I'm getting emails. And I, go, and I always felt like you worked from midnight to whatever. I did midnight shifts. You know yeah. what I mean? Jesus, midnight shifts, <laughs> 2 a.m. shifts. Yeah, like that doesn't, dude, you know, when a supermarket's shut, never. That means someone's servicing those supermarkets, you know. Remember when we were kids and it was like, if you didn't buy everything by Saturday afternoon, you had no food for like till Monday morning. <laughs> Petrol stations, you know what I mean? Like you, you, everything is open now. So we have to literally service these things 24-7. Someone's got to be there to pick up a phone. Yeah. How pissed off do you get when you actually call a business and it's shut? You're like, what do you mean there's no one to call? <laughs> <laughs> Especially nowadays, man. Yeah, it's just unheard of. It's like, how can there not be someone answering my, you know, stupid inane question right now <laughs> that can't wait? I want my kicks in size 48 and I need to know if they're in stock in this country. Tell me where the low-carb potatoes are. <laughs> 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 Low carb potatoes. I swear, the first time I saw that, I'm like, this has got to be the greatest scam in the world. Is it? What is a low carb potato? I think it's been genetically modified to have less starch or sugar or something, so it brings down the calorie and the carbohydrate content. So you can have more of the actual patata, <laughs> right? But we have with less of the guilt. <laughs> less of the guilt. You're talking to me, man. I ordered yesterday. I went. I was hungover as fuck. And um, I was having some uh, – dude, I'd went out on Friday night for the first time in, you know, how many times have we, and has anyone gone out in the last year and a half? Yeah. And it, it got messy bad. We started making – we were having whiskey sours, and once you realize you're paying everything by QR code, it's just beep, beep, yeah. get more, bring more, <laughs> you know, and it got bad. <laughs> I woke up yesterday. I had work to do. Got home, lay on the couch. I'm like, man, my guts are going around. I need something just solid just to sort of straighten me up. I went and bought – Korean barbecue. Kebabs. <laughs> yeah, I'm a dickhead. I should have gone for the kebab, but I ended up going for Korean barbecue because it was right around the corner from my house, and I wanted rice, you know, because mm-hmm. like, it just sucks. Like, it, it, um, yeah. it soaks everything up, but they put fries in there, and it was a, I got back to my house, and my hands were hurting just because the bag was that heavy. Sat down on my couch, and it's like, just patates, like, loaded mm-hmm. up in the packet. And I'm like, I really can't eat this. I'm just going to eat this and fall asleep. <laughs> There's <laughs> that zero guilt carb loading. Just give it to me. Yeah, yeah. Dude, no, was- I'll work it off tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, a bit of context, man, because I- <laughs> it's really trippy. I actually try. I was trying to rack my brain of when the last time was that I actually saw you. I know we've. I can tell you. Bullshit. Yeah. Really? I'm cursed with a. Almost perfect memory. So it would have been when you were living in Clayton, and I came past with... Fuck! Yeah. I think you were very staunch against everything back then. (laughs) Right? So me and just sitting in your backyard having bongs. (laughs) What are you doing here? Bali. Are you serious? Yeah. And, um, well, in all fairness, we were pretty pretty buckled. Your backyard looked like Narnia to me. (laughs) That backyard was Narnia, man. It was massive. It had like a big a village, a veggie patch. It was like fig trees and two sets of fig trees, like an apple tree at one point. It was just fucking I think it, I thought it was because I was stoned, but that looked like an <laughs> impressively big backyard. No, it was. It was one of those. The neighbor had ended up building like left the original house and ended up building two townhouses on it as well. Wow. So that like, picture that. We had a massive garage as well. Yeah. So hang on. If that was then, 
That would have been around 2000, late 2000s. I was going to say, it would have been, for him to be doing that in the backyard, it means that the house would have been empty, meaning it's when he was staying with me for like a month. Maybe. Yeah, because we we're the only ones there. And that would have been 2007. There you go. There you go. Are you serious? Yeah. Fuck. I actually haven't spoken to him since 2010. It's been a long time. Yeah. No, I'm, it's weird, man, because like I've actually reconnected with a lot of people in the last like month that I haven't spoken to in five, ten years. And it's amazing to hear like some of the things that have stayed the same and some of the things that haven't. Mm. You know, people that are just surprised to actually run into me now. I think I've mellowed out, if you ask me. Mm. Like, life just grinds you down. It does, man. It just wears you out sometimes. Mm. Okay. If you can remember the last time that I saw you, I can remember the first time that I met you. Oh, am I? <laughs> is this in my bedroom? <laughs> Doing the Kama Sutra? Yeah, I was just going to say, <laughs> you were literally recreating the Kama Sutra. On a football. <laughs> I think I was the first person to have one of those fitballs and use it for that specific purpose. That was 2000, man. Yeah. I was still in high school. We had that mutual friend of ours. Um, and I remember she hit the door first and I came in second. <laughs> and then she's done an about face. I'm like, what? <laughs> Who was that? Uh, her name was... From Sydney. I think was she it? was originally from Sydney and yeah. she lived here and then she went back. That's yeah. right. I, I don't know what happened to her. Oh, she's still online somewhere floating around. <laughs> <laughs> online. Actually, that's a testament, man. I met you, yeah, originally through uh, Merck. Because of that mutual friend. We had a couple other mutual mates. And then mm. I started seeing it just because, yeah, your mates were like Billy Adder and the <laughs> yeah. rest of them. And, I, I, yeah, I'd see you around the traps more and more. But, yeah, yeah but you're, you're like one of the testaments of like the few people that has stuck around visible for that and since that period that I, of people that I've met online exclusively and then actually bled into real life. Does that make sense? I'm like a bad penny, man. I just keep turning up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Reason why I called you here was because of what we touched on like ages ago. Yep. You said you yourself said that you had disappeared between 2006 and 2014. I think. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was around, but I was, but I wasn't. Okay. And there was a shell of a man. <laughs> shell. I need you to start going into that. Okay. All right. So where did it actually start? Because you've already touched on 2007, mm-hmm. which is the last time I saw you. So you would have been a year into your, your journey, basically. I think I was still experimenting by, back then. It wasn't anything Experimenting too... like a Prince music video? Or... <laughs> no, it was, a, it was a bit more than that. So I think it was the, um, the chuff back then, right? Yeah. And then it kind of evolved into a... Uh, how am I going to explain it? It went from a, hey, let's, um, let's pick up a bit of a couple of bickies here and there yeah. to let's pick up a bit of speed here and there to let's pick up a bit of coke here and there yeah. to, okay, well, none of this is working anymore. Let's, let's get on the real stuff, which yeah. was the shard, okay. you know, the ice, the meth, whatever you want to call it. And um, that just bled into real life yeah. all over the place. So we'd start with maybe one or two of us putting some money together and having the weekend, you know, out. Because we thought it's so potent that, you know, between the two or three of us, a little amount will keep us going for a while. Yeah. And at the start, it does. I mean, it does the job that it's supposed to do. But We're talking about ice now. We're talking about ice, yeah. Okay. But sooner or later, I mean, your tolerance goes up. Yeah, it's like booze, man. How do you think I got the name Booze Hound? Do you know what I mean? Mm. But I went out on Friday night and I was literally like a 17-year-old, man. I, I got <laughs> KO'd. <laughs> Straight away. Yeah, well- my tolerance was okay. I managed to get home. My mate who I was with initially, 
she she there's no vivid recollection of what happened between eleven thirty and me getting her home. Oh, and, and shit. me and her ten years ago, we used to go clubbing every weekend and just be doing shots every twenty minutes. You know what I mean? Oh, alcohol. Just <laughs> <laughs> shivered. Oh man, I'm telling you, it's been a while between drinks. Mm. Definitely. Okay. All right. So, 2006. You're saying you started with chuff. Um, no, I started chuff way earlier than that, but I think I just picked it up back then in 2006 because the party that I was with, right? Yeah, standard. Because for a while I was, you know, into the, the whole fitness thing. I was well, trying. To I compete. always remember you as being a fitness orientated person. Yeah, like forever. I was the guy that used to wipe the salt off his chips. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I was that hardcore into it. None too much sodium. You know, what are you doing? Like I was the guy that would be telling you off for smoking a cigarette. Yeah, but I think. A few things went wrong with relationships and um, my immaturity in dealing with them. Yeah. And I thought, you know what, it's no time like the present to experiment. Okay. So let's say if you were a casual, let's say you were a casual smoker before 2006, Mm -hmm. when would you have started just being a casual smoker? 14 years old. Okay. So from high school, like just as everyone sort of fucks around or whatever. Pretty much, you know, free periods, you go to someone's house and just- Yes, yeah, smoke a couple of joints and get the munchies and. So you're saying by 2006 it became more of a um, what's the word like a, a, a lifestyle choice, yeah, active choice, pretty much. Okay, and you put it down to just crowd that you're with. I put it down to obviously, like you said, emotional I, maturity mm, in handling issues. I liked it. Yeah, I really did. He agreed with me because, well, I was very, um, I was a very shy person, but this allowed me to be a bit more open. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a gateway, like, you know. Pretty much. And that's what really drew me to the amphetamines afterwards, right? Because the amphetamines was, there was no inhibition. Yeah. At all. Like, you'd walk around just speaking to anyone that would listen. Yeah. So, for me, that was great because I I could come out of my shell without the the brain going, don't say that because they're not going to like that or, you know, don't do this because this might happen. It put a break on all that. Okay. So it was a confidence builder, basically, for you. No, definitely. Okay. So by 2006, 2007, it's become a lifestyle choice. Now, if you put it down a crowd, you put it down emotional intelligence, all that sort of shit, at what point do you reckon it escalated to, like, say, meth and ice? Um, 2000, I think 2007, I would have been in the full force of it. Okay. So say a year in, you've just gone up the ante on everything. Everything. Was your crowd changing? Very much so. Okay. A few people stayed the same, like very close to me, but even they were actually changing themselves yeah. as we were all going through it. So we we went from the parea that you know that did ice to the guys that were doing ice and running scams and staying up for like two or three weeks at a time. Yeah, to the point where a friend of mine ended up getting shot by the police on in the in our street. What? Just, just down the road? Yeah, man. So this guy had been awake for. How long was it? Would have been like two weeks or something. Just kept refeeding himself. Yeah, and it was pure ice back then. It was not like the shit that was going around, like you know nowadays. Yeah, it's like proper meth that would send you crazy. Yeah, and this guy just kept smoking and smoking and smoking, and one day he just wanted to come down. He just wanted to sleep, right? And people were cutting grass everywhere. So he goes outside, tells his uh, family off. They get worried, right? And as you would. Because you know, the guy had a reputation for being a bit of a hothead. Yeah. And um, they called, I think it was the cat team, and they came. Um, he threatened them. 
Uh, he told them he was going to shoot them. So naturally, they called the Special Operations Group. Yeah. Special Operations Group came. He started waving a gun around. I don't know. What, I don't think he was even loaded the gun. Oh, but it was a gun. He De- actually did have a gun. Definitely had a gun. Okay. And um, they just double-tapped him straight to the chest, man. No shit. Yeah, but he was so high that he, he just bounced back up, went back inside the house, came out, started doing karate moves. All right. <laughs> what? And, and then they tasered him to the ground. He reckons he woke up two weeks later in hospital and then did six years in Port Phillip. He got shot twice. And then got tasered after that. Yeah, man. What crank was he on, man? Like, Pretty good one. That's fucked, man. <laughs> it, I mean, it didn't hurt that his chest was massive from all the training. Oh, okay. So it was a unit as well. Yeah, he was a machine. <laughs> man. And he was, the, he, he was the nicest guy. Without the gear, the nicest guy you'll ever come across. Yeah. And he, you know, I'm sure he regrets all his actions and everything that he went through. But man, that was, that was such a surreal moment because a few... Maybe about a week before that, we had a falling out over drug money yeah. that I owed him to the point where he pulled the gun out underneath my chin. Shit. Right? I didn't realize what he was. I just pushed him away. I thought it was like a pencil or something. And as I pushed him away, I saw that he was holding the piece. I'm like, ooh, this could have gone very, very bad. Yeah. And when he, well, I heard the news that he went to jail, I'm like, man, this, this is not right. So he actually went to prison. Like it was actually a thing. Like Yeah. Okay. Is he still around? He's still around. He's doing all right now. He's he's out. You have anything to do with him or? Here and there I run into him, but look, life has taken us on different paths. And it's better like that because we used to feed off each other. Yeah. You know, one person will push the other one. It's probably for the best. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Look, as I said, there's people that I haven't spoken to in over a decade mm. and it's for the best. You know De- what I mean? Definitely. I, I look at the people like, man, that scenario, I've heard it a thousand times. I mean, I grew up in Clayton. You know what I mean? I, I I went to the same school with half of these people. I you hear about it, man. There's I remember a guy that I bumped into when I was working years ago. We started talking and then mentioned that we're both from the same hood from back in the day. Started shooting some names around, and one's like, "Yeah, man, like he died." Like, what are you, like we're just bringing up names. It's like, yeah, that guy's dead. That guy's dead. That guy's in the pen. You know what I mean? That guy, no one knows where he is. Like, it's a standard sort of thing, you know, especially if. You've, if you've grown up around the traps, and that's the sort of reality that you're seeing. Well, that's what they say in um, rehab work, right? Like you're bound to end up in one of three places: right? jail, yeah, psych ward, or the funeral, mm. funeral home, man. Yeah, no, 100. percent It's it's actually weird, man, because like, like I said, I, I met you in 2000. It's yeah. 2021, man. Twenty long- odd years have gone. It's been a long time. I know it has, and we're sitting here, and we can, we've gone both gone through it, obviously in different ways. Do you know what I mean? But we're yeah. still here to say, actually, say it back. Let me ask you a question. You mentioned that this guy was like a, a bit of a unit. Do you reckon the drug sort of scene, especially then, do you reckon it was tied in invariably to like drug use uh, and, gym, and training? Funny you say that because a lot of the personal trainers that I knew back then were on it. Yeah. And one of the reasons why it really appealed to me as well was because I liked to train. You know, I liked to train. Right? I wanted to push my body. I wanted to get lean. I wanted to get big at the same time. Yeah. And this allowed you to get lean because, I mean, it would kill your appetite. Yeah. So in the, in the weekend, you'd lose like, what, four or five kilos? Just, just, okay. It would just dry you out completely. So you're thinking, man, this is the way to go. Yeah. You know, just take it for a couple more days, competition ready. Yeah. That's not the case, though. <laughs> because competition, at, <laughs> yeah. at, at, the, at the same time that it's, you know, burning away, you know, fat cells and 
Yeah. All the rest is burning away brain cells. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's things that it does. It rewires your brain in a way that it it should not be rewired. That's the thing. I always used to say, like, when people like we so against shit like that. Like we, I don't care. Like I've yeah, obviously eased up on that a long time ago because it's invariably just a plant. You know Mm. what I mean? But the shit that that ice is made of, you know, meth (sighs) and all that sort of stuff, it does shit to your your body where your body's physically not meant to be able to do it. Of course. Creating like your serotonin levels and all, just basically putting in the hyperdrive. It, it drains your dopamine. It gives you such a massive dopamine hit without the need of going through the hard effort to, Creating, you know, yeah. to, to get that dopamine. Yeah. So basically, it's just it's just cooking you. Yeah. So you flood you with the dopamine, then it cuts off the reuptake receptors. So you're just flooded with this, you know, for six, seven hours, depending on the quality, obviously. Yeah. You know, and things just get confusing and angry after all. After a while, you just want to come down. Yeah, you don't want to be high anymore because uh, you're not high anymore. Your body's not high, but your brain's all confused. Yeah, it's doesn't, exhausting. Doesn't know what he wants exactly. Okay, I think um, it's weird because like I think during the sort of early noughties, not noughties, like two thousand tens, like two thousand thirteen, fourteen. It's when that culture of like gym. And, you know, festivals and all that sort of shit. That really took over. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like all the bloated zis, like wannabes, you know? <laughs> And I think drug use was sort of tied to that all of a sudden. But I think maybe for different reasons than in the early, in the mid-2000s as opposed to 2015. Look, early 2000s, it was, it was seen more like a junkie drug, right? It was, yeah. It had this weird evolution, the, the meth. It started off as like a real scummy, junky uh, drug. And then it became really popular. Because the the price went up as well on it, right? Yeah. So it was it seemed very exclusive to people. So if you could afford it, you know, you were part of the in crowd. It was like the new Coke. So it, it gained a lot of notoriety and a lot of popularity at the same time. Yeah. And then after a while, it went dark again, like real dark. That's when everyone just was getting on it and instead of having fun on it. Because you know, at the start, it's fun. I mean, no one does drugs at the start because they're not fun. But sooner or later, it, it you know that stuff turns on you real quick. So you go from like hanging out with the boys having pipes to hanging out in your garage, thinking which one of the boys you could scam to get more gear. Yeah, I always used to say it to people that would like thought they were like uh, celebrities because they were doing cheap coke on weekends. Like, <laughs> Do you think this is what rock stars is actually taking? <laughs> shit that was cooked up in someone's garage. No way. Well, you think you're like getting Colombian primo gear here all of a sudden? Like you're fucked. You're buying half a gram of some shit, you know, off the bottom of someone's car and you're acting like you're fucking Paris Hilton. Like, give me a break. <laughs> Chances are it was never Coke or anything to begin with. <laughs> yeah. I've seen it firsthand, like guys ma- making drugs. Yeah. You know, to sell to people who thought they were real drugs. Right? I saw it with my own eyes, right? This guy used to get absolute cutters, right, from his dealer. And his dealer was telling me, he goes, man, I'll give this guy total shit. And he loves it. He goes, watch this. One day he gave him proper gear. The guy came back and complained. Because it's, a, oh, it's not like the other times. What do you mean? He, could, he complained that it was different. So he thought the real gear was bad. Because he was, it stuck in his mind. Like, this is what it's supposed to be like. Yeah. All right. So you've escalated to, say, meth. And you're doing that sort of full time. Yeah. Um, how far did the darkness sort of go with you? You went all the way, man. Yeah, all the way. Um, from losing friendships 
to losing myself, uh, losing my family, uh, being kicked out of home, living rough in my car. Yeah. You know, getting arrested multiple times. What were you being arrested for? Just vagrancy or? I was being arrested for driving unlicensed, driving without registration, um, possession of controlled substance, uh, possession of weapon, prohibited weapons. So this would be like a knife that I had in my car to like cut apples and that kind of stuff. But you know, when the police find you, I mean, cut you, apples. Yeah. Well, you know, t- things to eat, man. Yeah. <laughs> but they don't care because they, they see you in the car as a junkie. Yeah. They don't see you as a person at that stage. And that's the reason why I ended up getting into the job that I'm in now. Because, I mean, everyone, every addict is someone's son or daughter. You know, we we grew up as kids. We don't deserve that label. No, uh, I agree. I agree in that sense, yeah. I mean, everyone's got a story of how they got there. Exactly. You know? And sometimes things are beyond someone's control. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I mean, some people go into drugs because they have pre-existing mental health issues, right? Yeah. And other people develop mental health issues because of the drugs, yeah. which makes it a hundred times harder to get off. Yeah. It's like what came first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah. Man, I've, I mean, I've been pretty open about my mental health uh, story, my mental health issues. I, I didn't do meth or ice or any of that sort of shit. Prim- to a lot of reasons why. One reason would be because I couldn't afford it. Number mm-hmm. two... Um, the people, I saw what it did firsthand to people around me yeah. and I sort of cut off from that. My form of substance abuse came from, and not even booze, like I was, it wasn't even booze, man. It was, it was all codeine based. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know what I mean? Well, I went down that rabbit yeah. hole too, man. Because I mean, injury on injury, you're working as a laborer, you know, your shifts are getting cut because you're, you're underperforming. You know, that's the standard sort of shit. Yeah. And it's like, well, if I just take two protein and uh, um, an anti-inflam, Maybe. And then maybe take a swig of... Uh, <laughs> maybe a bit of endone on yeah, top of it. Dehydrocodine to- on top of that. <laughs> I'll be good to go. And I'm sitting there operating heavy machinery when I've taken stuff that normally puts people in hospital for like a week or two. It's like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm good for... Th- yeah, 12-hour shift. I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, I'll do a double. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's crazy. When I look back at it now, it's like, shit. Like I was, And I've done damage, man. Like my, my stomach, liver, you know, I feel it. Um, and I know that, you know, I look back at it. It's like I was... Li- and then, you know, I remember nights out. My idea of a night out was, you know, take two protein and then follow it with a couple, you know, scotch fucking tumblers and then take another protein about two hours later, then yeah. take whatever else is left in the bottle and then... Because you've got to make sure that it doesn't wear off, yeah, right? Yeah, I, I couldn't... Yeah, exactly, man. So it definitely blurred it at some point. Mm. And it really was, man, just the weight of responsibility slash... Expectation? Expectation, Exactly. And then just knowing that there, there was no way, like I just, you just go. You have to keep going. I, I was never, it wasn't like I was a, I was a functioning. I can't say that I was a functioning addict, because I used to use that terminology. Yeah, I, and I just I, it doesn't agree with me anymore yeah. either, because there's no such thing. I don't really. like it. Yeah. I really don't like it. Yeah, because you can't be functioning in an addict. Yeah, I, I hear that all the time, especially from people who have kids. You know what I mean? It's like, well, you know, they, they still they still provide. I'm like, what are they providing? Nothing. Nothing. What? The fact that they're keeping the rent going? That doesn't mean shit. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? You can't be a functioning addict. Like, because yeah, you're literally, you can't take away the word addict from functioning. If you're functioning, you're not an addict. Like, it's you're, oxymoronic. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent, man. So at any point, I mean, I know I've, I've I've read your um your story on your page, clean, sober, and proud, and you did sort of use that that terminology about being a functioning addict because you sort of had the balance. Is that the best way to put it? Or 
I think it's because um, I still thought of myself as functioning. Like I thought, yeah. I thought I had a really good grip on it. Yeah. Because I was at, at that stage, I was still able to kind of jump in and out of use. Right. I, I you know, w- uh, use for two or three months, pretty hardcore, and then I take five or six months off. Yeah. This is before everything escalated. To the point where you know, I started my business. I started my PT um, studio in Oakley, but I, I had a was it three discs out in my back. Yeah, I remember that. I remember you always having that sort of issue, and um, it just kept flaring up. Right, and then I was doing um, furniture removals with a friend, and then he just, you know, fucking Greeks, man. I know, right? You got three herniated discs. You know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, furniture removals. That seems. Comments. That's that, that's the logic Why not? thing. Why not? Pick him up to Like, tracking the lips. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. All right, I'll go just to get you off my back. Yeah, and can you imagine trying to explain to your parents or something that your back hurts? Like, I can't, then, I can't go to work. My back hurts. Yeah, no, they don't believe that. No, it's just get your shit together and go to work. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'll just go school. Yeah, right, and everything will be all right. And it was, you know, after one or two pipes, everything was great. Yeah. You could work. And there was no better painkiller for me. I'm like, okay, well, I, I can I can do with this every now and then, you know. I've got a couple of boys that can tick me up a bit of gear, and I'll, I'll be fine. And then it became going up during the day with the meth, and down at night with you know Zannies, Seroquel, Endone, Oxycontin, until it became unmanageable. And before you know it, you know you're selling off you know, four thousand dollar treadmills for you know a couple of points of ice. That's 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 crazy. Do you, do you know when it was when you actually crossed that line? 2011. Was that going from high functioning to just going straight out, balls to the wall, you know? Yeah. Junkie. How quickly, once you sort of crossed that line, how quickly did it go from like teetering on the edge to hitting bottom? Within, within three years. Three years. I mean, it was always kind of there, like yeah. walking like the razor's edge, so to speak. But he just needed that little push. And that little push for me came after the break breakdown of my um, relationship with my fiance. Okay. Uh, because it was a very um, a whirlwind chemical romance, so to speak, right? She was an addict. I was an addict. Together, we kind of like jumping off it every now and then. It was great. and But she had a lot of mental health issues too, the poor thing. And um, sooner or later, he caught up with her, and she just, you know, she couldn't do it anymore. Um, we lost the kid that we were going to have, and I don't know whether it affected her as much as it affected me. It just, it seemed like it didn't affect her as much. But for me, it was, um, I just felt like it was the ultimate betrayal or the ultimate um, rejection, I should yeah. say, right? So when someone's carrying your kid, and they'd rather choose gear instead of that, it's, you know... How, yeah. much, how much more can you be rejected? Yeah, no, hundred percent. It's it's a it's it's interesting, man. A lot of what you're saying stems back to emotional health and emotional maturity. No, definitely. Do you reckon? What do you reckon was set up in order for you to sort of not have that emotional maturity? Ooh, that- to not better be able to deal with your shit. What do you reckon was against you, working against you? I, think I can it- think of one thing right away. Oh, parents, exactly. Parents. 100% being Greek. Yeah. It's not something that I would ever say to them because they're very sensitive about that kind of stuff now, yeah. right? But um, definitely, I would 100% pull my, you know, my hand on the table and say that it was because of the way that I was raised, you know? Yeah. There was there was stigma around mental health in the house as well. 
Like, you know, if you said that, you know, you're struggling mentally, you know, we can't take you to, to a doctor. Well, okay, I'll just suffer. Yeah, imagine what the world is going to think, yeah. Exactly. Like, they're going to think we're bad parents. Well, this isn't about you. This is about me. 100%. I, I say it a lot. It's not just Greeks. It's culturally, it's across the board, man. Yeah. Yeah, you just don't, you don't, speak, you don't speak out against the family in any way. You don't make it seem like you've compromised anything in the form of, like, normality within the house. Mm. Keeping up appearances, all that sort of shit. And I think that, that was the hardest thing for them when they realized that I was at the stage that I was at. You know, they, they couldn't look at me anymore. And that's fair enough. I mean, like I did a lot of things around the house that I was, you know, I'm not proud of, and I manipulated him in the ways that I, you know, that I knew, so I can get whatever I needed to get out of them. But to you were my habit at that point. No, no, I was a different person, a different, different person. I didn't recognize me. Yeah. No, no, that, that's fair, man. So parents would definitely be like the first sort of leg. Um, would you say environment like where you grew up, people you knew, all that sort of shit, or do you reckon? Yes and no. Um, it's definitely some people that I was hanging around with because, like I said earlier, I was a very shy person. Very, um, I wasn't the kind of guy that was the life of the party, right? And um, I had that chip on my shoulder as a as a kid. Like, I, like I wanted to be remembered by people. You know, like I didn't want to be that guy that fades into the background. Like never. And I had cousins that were in the underworld. And I, like I saw the way they were treated, right? And I thought, well, notoriety is the same thing as being liked. Yeah. So why not follow the suit, you know, exactly what they're doing? So I adopted the mannerisms. I adopted, you know, the way of talking, the way of behaving. And it wasn't, it wasn't me. It's weird, like, especially so, growing up in these, these areas, man. What's revered is totally different. to Toxic. Yeah, I mean, what we're at now, like, you know, we're bordering middle age, basically. Like, you think about the shit that we sort of looked up to or thought was respected then. It's like, are you fucking joking? It's a joke. It is. Like, ultimately, it is a joke. I don't know. Do you still... How many people would you say you still speak to from, say, when you were 15 to now? No, look, because of Facebook and all that, a few more than I care to. <laughs> <laughs> Because everyone just finds you sooner or later, right? Yeah. And um, look, not many that I hang out with. I'd say that. Like I could count on one hand the amount of people that I like. I still hang out with. Yeah. Which is really why I wanted to reconnect with people that I was really close with. Like, you know, like we've been friends since year nine, and when we inevitably lost contact when we got married, I mean, I knew I had to pull away because I mean I respected him as a friend. Right, and I thought, like, this guy just got married. He's probably going to start a family. This is not what he needs in his life. So, I mean, as hard as it was for me, like, I thought I was doing the right thing. Yeah, it's a big thing, though, for you to actually say, to, even to yourself, and recognize that someone else would be better not having someone like you in their life. Yeah, that's massive, man. That that's the most selfless thing you could ever think. Well, yeah, maybe, or maybe I'll just give myself permission to just run a mark without exactly. him. You know, on one leg. Exactly, 100%, man. I'm, I'm, it's, yeah, I mean, you're living with yourself at the end of the day. Exactly. Okay. It's weird too, man, because like with Facey, I purposely don't have, I shut my personal Facey account down you know, 2015 or something. And um, I made the mistake, I've got a business Facey, and I made the mistake of letting someone add me because they were including me in like a group, you know, for a 
a bucks or a wedding or something that's yeah, coming yeah. up. <laughs> I'm like, all right, because it's too hard to just message me. You know, I'll join the group. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, a slew of Facebook requests came in. And I was like, no, like, I've just ignored them. I, just, I, don't, I don't want it. I don't want to see it. There'll be none of that. <laughs> it's pretty weird, man. Like, I look back. Every now and then, I'll go down that sort of rabbit hole, and I'll start looking for people I went through high school with just to, just to see. What they're doing? Not even what they're doing. It's more just to see, put a face. Because, man, through high, I got bullied through high school. Oh, likewise. You know, bullied through primary school. I was tortured in my high school. Yeah. You went to go. No. No, you went I was to. At the, I was at the shit end of that stick. Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> at least you guys had grass, man. Yeah, we but everyone that got expelled from Kanoas, yeah. we were the last line of education. <laughs> I still, I still it's like dangerous minds. Dude, it is. <laughs> Our school was the last line of education in the southeastern suburbs, man. If you got expelled from any other school and no one would take you, you came to our school. And it's weird because like, I picture like, you know, you leave high school with an idea of what everyone is. And then if you don't see them for 15, 20, 25 years, mm. all of a sudden when you see them in a new light, and everyone's approaching middle age. And it's all like, fuck, these are the people that I let dominate my life? Like, are you joking? Yeah. <laughs> I, I've actually come to that realization recently. I've run into, like, a couple of my old bullies, let's, say, yeah. let's call them, right? People that made my life a living fucking oh, Here's the swearing on here. No, go yeah, right? a, li- a, li- a living fucking hell through high school, right? <laughs> to the point it's where- much of a gentleman, man. <laughs> to, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to be. I'm yeah, trying yeah, to yeah. To the point where I, like- uh, that's was one of the catalysts why I wanted to change from being that quiet person to that you know yeah. n- notorious you know, guy that no one fucked with. Yeah. And I just I ran into them and I thought this is a joke. Like you you've got no power. Yeah. You never did. I changed my whole life because of you. Yeah. It's weird, man. It's a surreal feeling. Yeah, I've. Over the years, I've run into a few people, but I'll be honest, man, the biggest perpetrators from like that scene, I haven't seen. And mm. it's maybe it's because it's not because I hide. I don't hide. Mm. I go, I've been adamant about it, whether I've had breakups or whether I've you know, had fallings out with people. I don't change where I go based on who may be there and who may not. Hell no. No. If, I, if someone wants to get awkward and walk out, that's on them. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get my coffee, like regardless. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So I'll be honest, the biggest perpetrators from like the list that I might play back in my head every now and then, just when life sort of fucks with you, I haven't seen them. I haven't had the privilege of seeing them, and I've got no idea what would happen if I ever did see them. Few people that I've run into over the years, I remember once. Sorry, did, did you ever like wind yourself up so much like in situation, hypothetical situations of what you would do with it when you run into these people? Oh, yeah. Only to be faced with them at some stage and be like, yeah. Yeah. I feel sorry for you. Like, I feel sorry off. for you. It's something that I've said, yeah, multiple times, even if it's just to myself. Yeah. But I remember being in a club and I ran into one head and they actually, they had been drinking a bit. It was for a birthday of a mutual, of a mutual friend and they'd been drinking a bit and they said to me, man, um, I'm really sorry, like for not, not specific shit, just what happened. And they were meant to be like a friend who eventually like betrayed me in a sense, mm. right? Oh, yeah. And joined, joined like, you know, the cluster. Oh, don't, don't, I just, you just gave me goosebumps because I've had this happen recently. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and this, this guy that was my best friend in high school, sorry to cut you off. No, no, go. Betrayed me, right? And then reconnected recently trying to get me to counsel one of his family friends in yeah. drug re- rehabilitation. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to help if I can. Um, but you're still not saying the right things here. Yeah. Like a little bit of acknowledgement will be all right, man. 
That's and that's what I remember saying like to this dude because he's like he thanked me because if, he said if it wasn't for me he would have failed year twelve altogether because I basically just fucking offloaded a lot of work to all of them. Yeah. Even though I was on the outs and on the outer side, I wasn't that much of a cunt, and I still just said or whatever you know let this be my lasting fucking legacy you know to these fuckers, and I still remember him saying thank you and like and he apologized for a general sense not not specific shit and I said. I remember looking at him and saying, it's too late for that shit, man. Mm. I go, I nearly killed myself when I was in high school because of you fuckers. Yeah. I spent the next X amount of years recovering, you know, and trying to validate my own existence based on everything that happened when I was a teenager. Except we were all directly related to that shit. So we're standing in a bar now like 10, 15 years later. Do I give a fuck? Mm. means nothing now, man. Especially when you're in high school, man, it's, it's the, your formative years, you know? Yeah. That's when you're developing your identity. Yeah. And it's hard to be rejected. Oh, it's hard to be rejected anytime, man. Yeah. No human wants to be rejected. Especially when you're trying to learn who you are. Yeah, exactly. Because then you carry that shit with you for the rest of your life, right? Yeah. And it bleeds into in your relationships, your, you know, your codependent relationships after that, because obviously you're going to be having this fear of loss, right? That people are going to abandon you at some stage. You just nailed it, that, that codependent relationships. That mm. is, man, I had codependent friendships, codependent relationships, all forms of toxic, man. Mm. And it's only been the last, I've had a lot of things happen to me in the last, say, 12 to 18 months, outside of COVID, obviously. Yeah. Um, 12 to 24 months, where it's changed my mentality, and I've literally just drawn lines in sands. I'm like, you know what? Nah, that doesn't fly anymore. Clear boundaries, man. I might be a fuckwit, but I'm trying to eliminate you know, tr- PTSD, trauma, cool. yeah. you know, all that sort of shit, man. Like, it sticks. Like, the shit that we went through in high school does bleed out. Like, these insecurities will still keep playing on, man. And like you said, we weren't raised in houses where you could talk about it. No, hell no. Or you felt comfortable even just opening up. It, it was taboo. Yeah, it just doesn't exist. <sighs> okay, fucking hell. That's depressing. Oh. Um, so happy topics. <laughs> <laughs> How about those jets? Now, oh. um, okay. So you hit bottom. Yes. Where would you say your final bottom point was? Like literally in a car Whew. getting pulled over. No, I think my bottom point was um, actually I come out of the cells. I went back home. At that stage, we had gotten a phone call that my mum's brother in Cyprus had committed suicide, right? Okay. Um, he'd broken up with his wife and decided- health, again. Yeah. Decided to put a automatic rifle in his mouth and just blew his head off. Fucking hell. So, I mean, we've got mental health issues running in the family, right? Yeah. At that same day, I get a knock on the door from the police because I had fake plates on my car. Right? They'd see me driving around. They came to grab the plates and obviously arrest me. So, I mean, I opened the door. My parents were at the back, you know, grieving. I, I told the cop, I, go, I closed the door. I go, listen, whatever happens, I go, I need to be back here within the next couple of hours. He goes, oh, yeah, no problem. Let me just take the plates. They escorted me, like gentlemen though, right? They escorted me to the DV van, no handcuffs or anything, which is unheard of. Yeah. Um, took me down to the cop shop, took my um, statement, and I was getting ready to be released. And then the senior sergeant comes, and he goes, we are opposing bail. Why? On what grounds? Well, the fact that I had very colorful criminal history (laughs) by that stage, and um, he thought that I would be a a danger to the community. Okay. The way he stated it. Up until that point, your colorful criminal history was about possession, 
driving unlicensed, driving unregistered, mm. and possession of a, a weapon, like, say, a knife for cutting food open or whatever. Yeah. Is that the skinny of it? Well, it was mostly the possession side of things and, okay. you know, a little bit of driving unlicensed. Yeah. The rest of the stuff, the homelessness came afterwards. Okay. Right? And I'll, I'll paint you a timeline soon. <laughs> Don't wink at me, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm in the cells that night and obviously I've been high all day too, right? So I'm all, I'm coming down like like you wouldn't believe. And um, it hit me. I'm like, okay, this is my one chance to be there for my family today, like at a very, very crucial time, right? Yep. This is the one time that they needed me. And I've spent the past week before they just having conversations about like, what are you doing with yourself? Right, at least be there for this, right? And I, I, I thought to myself, I can't even do this right now. Like, this is this is my rock bottom. This is shit. Like, what kind of person am I? And um, as I was by myself in the cells, I um, I took off one of the shoelaces, right? Wrapped it around the neck. I put it on the other shoe and kicked down until it started cutting through the neck. Now, the la- that's the last thing I remember. The next thing I remember was the copper that arrested me, like, just holding me down. And he's cutting the shoelace from my neck. That was my my low moment. And um, then I ended up at the Marabin cells, waiting for the magistrate to let me out. Did you have actually served time, or you were just remanded? Like, as in always, oh, just remanded. And it was I was very lucky. Yeah, I'm surprised because I had by the end of it, I, like, I went on the, on the run as well. Run, I went, yeah. As was, in what they let you out waiting hearing. Right. So I had eight eight cases open against me, like 70, 72 charges somewhere there. 72? Yeah, quite a few. Were there charges of violence? No. Mm. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Look, there was nothing. I never did anything violent towards anyone except for myself. That's what I sort of – I think maybe that's why you got lucky. Yeah. Because that's what it sounds like anyway. There was a couple of incidents with the police, but – in my defense, right, this is not what they're going to say. In my defense, they instigated it. Yeah. Because when you've got four or five guys with guns drawn at you, like you get scared, right? You, yeah. you want to defend yourself. Yeah, it's fight or flight, yeah. I don't care what anyone says. At that moment, you you will either shit yourself, piss yourself, right, or you will get violent or run, right? Sometimes all at once. <laughs> <laughs> You're running down the road while shit's coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but- you know, to get back to it, um, after I came out of those cells, uh, I had a long, I had a long way home from Rabin to Oakley to walk, right? And um, I got home. Obviously, they realised that I was gone for this X amount of time, and you know, where were you? And your mother's been upset, and and um, it escalated from there. I'm like, look. I'm going to come out, um, I'm going to be honest with you, This because uh, up until that point, they didn't know that I was even a drug user. They thought, that, you know, this guy's having issues, but they didn't know. Are you serious? I hit it very well. How many years are we talking? That's 2006 to... 2014. Shit. <laughs> they had no idea, or do you reckon they were just in denial? I think they were in denial, like they knew something was going on, but for me, this was like a full-time job hiding it from them. Yeah. No, it is. Yeah, 100%. Like people say that being a drug addict is fun. It's not fun. It is worse than having a full-time job. I would gladly do back-to-back shifts and then go back to that lifestyle ever again. You know, because it, it, was, it was so mentally and physically draining. But once 
you know, once they, they were clued on about what was going on, like they, they just they couldn't look at me. So for a while there, I was out of the house and um, I ended up in Mooney Ponds at a family friend's house. It was an abandoned house, right? As in they owned the property and there was just no one in it? Or? Yeah, there was no one in there. <clears throat> and um, I, I called my uncle. I go, listen, I, go, I need somewhere. I need somewhere to go. And I told him straight out. And he, like he's passed away now, like rest in peace. But this guy was amazing. Like he had no bad bone in his body. He goes, like, come down because whatever you need. Because I'm just going to tell you, because there's no electricity. Because there's no hot water. Because you're going to be doing it tough there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I've done worse. Uh, this I have like a roof over my head, right? Yeah, and the front door with a lock. <laughs> exactly. So uh, I packed up my shit. I went down there, and um, then came the uh, the process, like, you know, getting clean. And I'll tell you what actually. Saved my life at that stage, cannabis. I I woke up the first and second day, and I, I wanted to kill myself. Like I really wanted to kill myself. I covered all the mirrors. Like I couldn't bear to look at myself. Like who are you? Like I'd look in the mirror, I'd see a demon, like some something that had possessed my body and like driven me to this kind of lifestyle. And um. <laughs> going through my clothes, like, to just change because you just sweat all this weird shit through your skin, right? I mean, if you have a bad curry, the sweat comes out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Imagine, like, battery acid and, uh, yeah. you know, and hydrous ammonia. And um, I found a bud. Where? In, in my bag of or my clothes and stuff. Uh, you know, I rolled up. I had a joint. By that stage, my uncle comes past and he sees me because uh, if you actually make a stick in the fuss. So we're sitting there. He's, he's watching me have a joint. He saw that I was starting to relax because up until that point I was like very jittery, right? Yeah. He didn't know what to make of me. He goes, Kita, I'm a Savoy As if it helps. Yeah. So, and that's the, the model of um, rehabilitation that I subscribe to, right? It's harm reduction rather than abstinence. I mean, abstinence is the end goal, harm reduction is the process to get there, as far as I'm concerned. So you think cold turkey doesn't work? It doesn't work for everyone. For some people, it does. Yeah. For some people, it does. But how long for? Like I've seen guys go cold turkey successfully. Uh, a few years later, they're still using. Yeah. Or they're back to using. Or Maybe not to the degree, but... Yeah, but they're still using, right? It fits a purpose. Whereas with the harm reduction approach... Like people say, you know, weed's the gateway gateway drug. Well, you know, if you're stepping one way through the gateway, can't you step back out the other way too? I mean, they prescribe Xanax and Valium to get you off hard drugs, and those things are the worst. Worst. The, the withdrawal from Xanax can kill you. It can literally kill you. I've never actually had to take Xanax for shit. Oh, man. I was prescribed by my doctor. By I was going to say, doctors have suggested. <laughs> by, by my GP, mind you. He put yeah. me on Seroquel and Xanax after asking me a series of five questions. Right? He determined that I was um, I was suffering from depression and that I needed to be on those two specific drugs. Now, having worked in mental health for the past um, you know, five years myself, I can safely say that Psychology and you know, breaking down someone's um, mood is subjective from day to day. Like today, I might appear depressed to you. Tomorrow, I might not be, depending on what's going on in my life. For a series of five questions or four questions or whatever the hell it was. In, in, in a 45-minute consultation. Yeah. yeah. How is that going to determine? How are you going to know what I'm like every day? 
if you haven't established a clear baseline yeah. of what I'm like. Man, man I'm, I'm the same, man. Like, as in pe- people say that about me. Sometimes I come off as really dark. Sometimes I'm, I'm fucking happy as Larry. Mm. Yeah, that's what mental health does. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's exactly right. Yeah. I, I believe, yeah, with the psychology thing, man, psychology, is, it's not a science to the point where this doctor, it, like, it, at the end of the day, it's this person's subjective opinion yeah. on what they, they're presented with at that point in time. How can you just draw a hard line and make it a decision, like, say, with the prescribing, you know, antidepressants like Xanax or whatever, how can you give that to someone full well knowing you're changing the chemical, like, balance Hmm. in their head? SSRIs, man. What is it? Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, like drugs like that. Why would you um, inhibit the reuptake receptor when you can actually boost up serotonin? Wouldn't that be better, more beneficial for the body to actually create more serotonin, like fix the gut-brain axis, you know, instead of castrating your brain's natural processes? I mean, you know, call me silly, but I, th- I think it'd be better off in the long term. Yeah, it's amazing how something like that seems really, like, just plain. Like, it, it's, what do you mean? It's obvious. And then, Yeah. But they're dealing with so many people every day that for them it's like a production line, right? Like, yeah, take this, take yeah. this, take this. Oh, you look a bit depressed. Yeah. Let me, let me bump up your, uh, your seroquel from 20 milligram to 300 so to the point where you're like drooling and pissing all over yourself. I, I've said this before, man. I said it years ago on, a, on this podcast. Um, I was with, I went to see my GP and um, he said to me, like, he said, I'm just describing my symptoms. I'm exhausted. I'm this and that. Can't sleep. Headaches, blah, 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 blah. And he sort of just put all his notes aside. He's like every time, I actually sent a few other people to him mm. that needed a GP, and I said, "Well, go see him. He's good." And they all came back and said the same thing. I sat down. He started taking notes. I'd never seen it before. I'm like, "What do you mean?" Well, I started, he started asking me what was wrong with me, and I, he started writing shit down. I'm like, yeah, I go, he's he's that's, assessing. Like that's what he's supposed to do. That's what a doctor's meant to do. He's meant to take notes, you know. And he was writing all this shit down when I went in there. And he's put his note down. He says he just asks because. What do you do for fun? Like, what do you mean? He goes, well, I know you work. Oh. He goes, I know you work a lot. What do you do to, like, you know? Unwind. Unwind. Like, what do you, I'm like, and I just sat there staring at him. And I had nothing. I had nothing. And I'm just staring at him, staring at him. And he goes, look. He goes, I'm not prescribing you anything. He goes, I'm not putting you on any of this shit. You're physically fine. Physically, like, you're you're in good shape. Like, you know, I was at the gym. I was working as a laborer. He goes, you're physically fine. This is all anxiety. This is all emotional, psychologically based. I don't want to put you on anything. Go find a hobby. Go start looking for ways to unwind. That's, and, a, that's a good doctor. And then here's a number for a person that I can give you a referral to. Go make an appointment with them and have a chat. Did he give you a mental health phone? Yeah. Well, he says, this is the plan and these are the steps you're going to take. Yeah. Let's do that first. And then we'll talk about something else. That's perfect. I know. It's amazing, isn't it? That doctors like that actually exist. But like you said, man, people just get shit slapped. Like think about it like this, yeah? I mean, you were on Zannies and, and shit to come down, right? Where were you getting them from? Doctor. <laughs> exactly. He was, even, he was my drug dealer. You didn't even need a dealer. No. And, and on top of it, I used to sell them. Yeah. If you ever needed a re-up, was there a like, – how hard was it to get a re-up? At the start, not very, but after they cottoned on that, hey, this guy's selling his his script, right? <laughs> they put a little bit of a halt on it. And they put a halt on it at the time when I actually needed it. Yeah. 
which was a little bit silly on my behalf. Yeah. But, you know, what are you going to do? It's, it's probably for the best at that stage because it ended up getting cold turkey off him. Didn't know about the horrible, horrible come down off him. What's it like? <sighs> you know what? I, okay. Have you ever seen the movie Transporting? It's similar to that. Uh, that's a little bit hyperbolic. Like, oh, obviously. I mean, yeah. it's based on a book. But it's very, very similar. Um, everything just feels like you feel an- anhedonia, but at the same time, you're emotional. It's like it's a weird feeling. You know, everything hurts. You, you have no motivation to do anything. You'd be look. How, how close to us is this TV? About a meter. All right, meter and a bit from you. So maybe two. I'd be sitting here looking at this TV, wanting to change uh, the screen, and I'd think about forty five minutes to do it. Just, just, just to actually think about doing it. Right? Why? As in, what's what's dragging your your thoughts? Is it nothing? Nothing. I, I just feel like it would be too much effort for me to exist at that very moment and get up off that seat, go to the TV, change it, and sit back down. Like, okay. like why? Why would I do that? Like, how is that going to benefit my life? That's coming down. Yeah. Fuck, man. How long did the coming down process take, like, actually flushing out? It, I think it took me... Okay, so at look, this point... From start to finish, it took me at, at least three months to get... Shit out of my system. Okay, so we're 2014. Yeah. And you're in Mooney Ponds. No, this is October 2014. Okay. October 14th, 2014. That's my clean, clean date. No shit. Yeah, man. Okay, so you're in Mooney Ponds and you've started the process. Yep. What were you doing, like, during that whole... So I'd get up in the mornings. De- detox. It's a detox. Yeah. Basically, it was glorified detox. Glorified. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just had somewhere to be where there was no other drug addicts too, right? Yeah. Which is probably the best thing for me. Yeah. Because Mooney Ponds was far enough that no one, no shit person could actually get to me. No one you knew anyway. Yeah, exactly. Mooney Ponds isn't. <laughs> like, I but, was but, picturing the brain. <laughs> but, uh, but you know what? I had the best time there. Yeah. Like, it, I was going through physical hell at some stage, but I learned who I was again. Yeah. Right? And... I had, like I said, no hot water, no electricity. It forced me to be, you know, self-sufficient. So what were you doing? Like, I mean, so I'd get up in the mornings, I'd clean the house, right? Because the night before, I'd fuck it up. You know, going through like anxiety and PTSD, and it's a very busy road where I was. You know, yeah. you hear a motorbike going past the bikies. <laughs> You'd be freaking out, right? <laughs> Spikies. I'm just, just picturing you. Why it's funny? I'm picturing like an Uber Eats. Like, he <laughs> uh. finally was back then. Yeah. So it's the spikies. <laughs> during, during the day, like I said, I had no electricity, which meant no fridge, right? Yeah. So you were eating fresh if you were eating. So the nearest IGA was about three kilometers away. So it actually forced me to start getting fit too. Yeah. Because I had to go, I mean, I didn't have a lot of money on me. I had limited funds. So I'd go get stale bread rolls that they were going to throw out, a couple of cans of tuna. Fuck. You know, go back to the house, eat. A few hours later, I'd be hungry again, so I had to walk back. So I'd get my steps in. I was going to say, three Ks, one K is about 15, 12 to 15 minute walk, isn't it? Well, not, maybe not for you. For well, someone- look, at that stage, I was 118 kilos. That's the other thing, man. When I read your story, I could never picture you. I've, how you look now, man, is how I remember you. Even when, <laughs> no, I'm serious. Even, dude, even when I was 15, 
like walking into your house and seeing you for the first time, I remember you being fucking fit. You weren't as you weren't as big as you are now, but yeah. I just remember you being fucking fit. This is literally how I've always known you as. Mm. As you are, you're a fucking time capsule, man. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm serious. I'm chemically preserved. A hundred percent, man. That's why when I read that, yeah, you'd bumped past a hundred plus. I can't ever imagine it. It was bad. Like I did, I did, I didn't recognize me. Yeah. How did that happen, though? I mean, I think from all the um, all the gear that I was doing, it kind of it shut down my adrenals. Okay. So you know your adrenals are responsible for your metabolism, you know, things yeah. that are supposed to keep you awake. And anyway, long story short, I was just eating so I wouldn't freak out, and I was the only guy I knew that I knew at that stage that would be high on meth and still eating full meals. Well, that's the thing. Everyone was taking meth and not eating. Mm. But I was eating, right? Because somebody told me, well, if you eat, you don't freak out. Because I used to get like hardcore paranoid and schizophrenic episodes, right? Yeah. Trees talking to me. uh, You know, we'd be sitting here across the table from each other. And I think you're signaling someone behind me. Fucking hell. Yeah, it was bad, man. I got in quite a few arguments like that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what? It was one story. I, I'm going to sidetrack a little bit. No, right? go, go, go. Sidetrack away. I was. Um, you know, we're only a few minutes from sidetrack. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Funnily enough. Yeah. So I, I was walking down, um, what was it? Near Notting Hill Pub. Okay. I'm picturing the Knot, Fentry Gully Road. Yeah. Like, yep. So I walked in there around about midday. I was coming down. I had all this gear on me. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go into the toilets. I'm going to have a top up. Right. I go, in, I go so where's the toilet? Because I. Uh, at the back. Like, Thank you. He goes, oh, you're welcome. I'm like, what? What did you say? He goes, I said, you're welcome. He goes, no, you said, you're welcome, Nick. How do you know my name? <laughs> the guy starts freaking out. He goes, I, I don't know your name, man. because I'm sorry if I offended you. <laughs> yeah. That, like that far gone. Fuck. Cool. How often, okay, th- this is something that probably, I think because of movies glorifying shit, they don't actually understand. The closest movie that comes to the reality of uh, meth is Spun. Spun? I've never seen it. Watch it. Okay. Old movie, you? It's old. Uh, John Leguizamo and- Oh, um, ah, good old Leguizamo. Yeah. It okay. is exactly like that. So, we, if you're an addict, right, and you're bound to you know having a top up, how often are you actually topping up? On an average sort of cycle. So look, let's let's talk about the potency of it first, right? Okay. When you're first starting off, and for most people, let's say a point which is a tenth of a gram, okay, is enough to keep you going for, if not hours, at least a whole day. Okay. okay. To give you an idea of how much I I was using, I was using three and at my worst three and a half grams a day. A point is a tenth. Yeah. So thirty-five times that. I was smoking half a gram at a time. How the fuck? Yeah. The- Massive tolerance. Jesus Christ. Was your tolerance always high, maybe because of your fitness and your thing, or was it just- No, it just, it just bumped over up time. over time. I mean, a lot of it was probably because the gear was shit at some stages. Yeah. Right? But any, it was never less than half a gram. Okay, this is uh, this is what I was trying to say. When you're when you're dependent on something like this, mm. how often in a day are you actually stopping to top up? Whenever you get the chance, you go to someone's house, right? You got a free toilet, you top up, right? You jump in your car and you're you know you, sh- you so- haven't started driving it or something. Yeah, 
you just, you, if, you, if you have started driving, you pull over on the freeway, you top up. So it physically stops you from fucking – it takes hours out of your day just – Oh, yeah. And, and because it's, it's a stimulant, it's a psycho stimulant at the same time, right? I mean, back then we thought, hey, it's, it's like really strong speed, but it's not. Speed's an amphetamine, right? It's a stimulant. This is a psycho stimulant. It's more closely related to MDMA than it is to speed. Right, so from the moment you're having it, your perception of reality has already changed. You don't you don't exist in the real world anymore. Was there a reason why you settled on ice itself? I settled on it because of its potency. Because I, I did initially think it was like a really strong stimulant, like speed. That's the way it was described to me. And by the time I realised that it wasn't, it was already too late. It's already got you. Like nothing else compares to it. We're talking like, you know, what's your best orgasm that you've had in sex, right? Multiply that by 100 times. That's that's your first hit that you're always chasing. And nothing will ever come close to it. No, I remember her name. <laughs> Trish. <laughs> Time and place. I've got it in my head. That's locked away, man. Bang. <laughs> okay. In the When you sort of got to, say, meth, right? Were you still fucking with other shit at the same time? Oh, yeah. I was a multi, uh, I was a poly user. So how did that work? Was it just literally coming up, coming down, coming up, coming down? Or yeah. was it just whatever So meth was, uh, you know, my my woman. That was my, my wife. And everything else was like my side piece. Right? So meth would bring me up. And if I felt like I was going too high up and I needed to kind of, you know, pull back a little bit, it'd be, what, stuff like we'd smoke heroin or... You know, we'd smoke chuff or we'd come down with Zannies and Seroquels and whatever we can get our hands on. Yeah. So it just became just a roulette, basically. Yeah. Whatever. And, I mean, initially we started with Bickies, you know, Eckies, which were fun at that stage. I remember, remember when everyone was doing Eckies, man? Yeah. You don't even hear about it anymore. No, because everyone went on to the Shard, right? Um, like, dude, I'm, I'm thinking about it now, 2005. Around the time when you said you started on the, on the Shard sort of journey... I'm remembering the people I was with around that time, and fuck, everyone was doing pills like, on mm. week on weekends. We used to sell them. Yeah, that's that's how we ended up, you know, raising our bank balance for the shard, and it was a natural evolution after that. So you go from making money from the pills to losing money on the meth. Yeah, does anyone even take pills anymore? I, maybe I'm just ignorant because I'm older, and I don't know. I don't even know if they're around anymore, man. I don't, I, I don't hear about it. Like you always hear about someone talking about Louis or fucking Speed or some shit, but. Yeah, <laughs> you're making the same face I'm making. No idea, man. Yeah, it's amazing. I think the last time, no, I think it's the the mushrooms now making the comeback. Fuck. Because I had a a family friend that you know I haven't really seen in a while. Actually, ran into him last year, and he goes, "Oh man, I'm getting mushy caps off my uh, weed dealer." I'm like, yeah, it's "Good for you, man." Um, <laughs> goes, oh, "Do you want to do you want to have a journey with him?" I'm like. No, you, you do realize I have a massive, massive problem with drugs, right? <laughs> like once I start, like, are you willing to take the, you know, the brunt of the cyclone? You think okay. you think you know better? You, okay, so you've gone. You're in the house. You're doing the Spartan thing of tuna <laughs> and stale bread, no water. <laughs> <laughs> like that's what I'm picturing, man. It's a like mm. safe house, basically. Basically. Okay. How long did that go for, Ola? So that started in October, yep. right? And it went through to 2015, around about March. Okay. So okay. five-odd months? Yeah. Six? Yeah. Well, by that stage, I reconnected with the folks. They'd come to grips, you know, in terms of everything that had happened to me. And 
there were the old lady had come to visit me a couple of times, stayed with me, and I I took her through the whole journey, everything that you know led to that moment, and she started to understand a little bit. By that stage, I, I knew I had to come back. Like, I couldn't stay there forever. Um, but I was still on the run from the cops, mind you. That was my next question. What happened to all the cases that were pending? They were still pending. <laughs> so I no one knew where you were? No. Oh, fuck, man. Which is what really what I find weird about when people, you know, get found easy by police. Like, oh, this appeared like that. Yeah. No one knew where I was. Like, the cops would turn up to my house. And my parents would be like, we don't know where he is. Settle <laughs> <laughs> on <laughs> Basically right Yeah And um, By that stage I knew I had to come back But I still didn't want to get Caught by the cops I knew I wasn't ready To face um, You know Everything that I had done I knew that when I presented myself to them I wanted to be a different person Like completely different I, would, I didn't want to be the person That they had on paper Right Yeah you want to stand a chance Against a judge And Not just that I wanted to Kind of prove That that's not who I am yeah, situations made me that person. This is who I am. Okay, so I mean, I came back kind of to the areas. By that stage, I knew I couldn't go to Oakley. There's no way. Um, I found a place in Mount Waverley. I rented that under <laughs> a pseudonym because um, the John Lim. <laughs> well, we won't go into the name <laughs> that I used. John Lim. <laughs> <laughs> what is the guy's name? Um, Eastern tradition meets Western medicine. <laughs> Yola Lim. <laughs> <laughs> so I stayed there for a little bit I made the mistake of thinking to myself You know what? I'm doing pretty well Maybe I'll try to get someone else off drugs Okay So I touched base with this one girl That I used to hang out with I go, look If you if you need a place to, to stay I go, got a couple of extra rooms Come come stay She did But she brought drug dealers with her Yeah And she was ripping people off Stealing cars Bringing drugs in the house And I just couldn't do it Right, uh, it got to the point where, because at, at this stage I was actually I started working. I was doing car park cleaning at Fountain Gate by hand, twelve-hour shifts at night. Right, this is like my penance for everything I've done. Like you got to make money, right? At the same time, you need something physical to just get your mind away from all the shit that you're thinking at the moment. In a way, it was it was very cathartic for me until I got home. Yeah, right, and see drug dealers passed out on my couch. With a bag of ice just sitting in front of them, like it runs with uh, Miklo and blood in blood out when he's working as a tie fitter. Pretty much, man. And he comes home. That's exactly <laughs> what it was like. Hey, fuck the world, Mister Retread Man. Yeah, just a second, Your Majesty. <laughs> <laughs> what a movie! <laughs> oh, what a great movie! Man. I know. I actually thought about it, dude. I on Saturday, like yesterday, when I got home from. Um, I was working and whatever, and I just passed out on my couch. I put on like an old Jackie Chan movie, but before I fell asleep to it, I actually said to myself, "Should watch Blood in Blood Out." But there's like three and a half hours. Who's got the time, man? You always find the time for <laughs> Blood in Blood Out. But we'd find Malaka. That movie goes for three and a half hours. We would sit and watch it from start to finish. Like, mm. how did we have that kind of free time to bang out a movie like that? And the thing is, none of those actors really. Did much after that, Benjamin Bratt, except for him, he's obviously. the only one. Legit- but, oh, and Samuel um, Samuel L. Jackson. But that movie was such an epic movie because it basically tells you about how situations can change in your life. Right? Yeah, like you can go from Core being- is making a man out of him. See that? Yeah. Like, and I think a lot of us re- kind of resonated with it. 
that you? Oh my god, if you see who this is. Fuck off. No way. Different time. <laughs> I've not spoken to him in a long time. It's been months for me too, man. <sighs> I can't I can't believe that. That's Yeah, we're just talking <sighs> about <laughs> Okay. So we were talking about blood uh, and blood Yeah, out. you're coming home, you're finding dealers passed out on your couch. Mm. So obviously I get upset, right? I told her, look, you got to go. You can't, you can't stay here. It's not good for me. She turns it around on me saying that, oh, I'm in love with her and that's why I'm kicking her out. Like, very, <laughs> very far from the truth, right? Wait, didn't you invite her to bring her in to clean her up? Yeah. Okay. But, you know, her ego and the fact that she was probably high. Yeah. She couldn't understand it. I come home one day and she's like making patates. Like she, she, she refused to go. I'm <laughs> like, you, I go, you, the way to apologize to me goes not through food. I go, you actually have to go. I go, I need my sobriety more than I need like a plate of potatoes right yeah. now. <laughs> Were they carb-free potatoes? <laughs> <laughs> Spud light. <laughs> <laughs> she, she wouldn't leave. Yeah. She, she would not leave like to the point where she actually brought these guys around again to kind of like back her up. This is your house. It's my place, right? I'm renting. I told the guy that was with her, I go, you're going to have to step out of the way before I step all over you, man. Yeah. Like, this is not going to happen. He left. Um, and she kicked up a fuss. Like, she tried to go at me. I grabbed a baseball bat. I started smashing this TV that I had in the living room. She locked herself in the bedroom. Oh, you're going to hurt me. I'm like, oh, I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm just trying to get you to understand, right, that you need to go. So I ended up putting myself in danger that night, I went and stayed at my folks' house in Oakley, knowing full well that any moment there could be like a knock yeah. on the door and I'm getting arrested. Yeah. I go, please be gone by the morning. Go, That's all I ask. Just just go. I come back. She's she's cleaned me out. What? She's cleaned up in my whole house, man. She took the extra TV that I had, this one that she found in the hard rubbish. She goes, that's mine. Right? And anything that I had of value was gone. But anyway, look. How, it, how long had you been building up? Like, you've left Moody Ponds, you've gone to this place in Mount Waverley. It would have been close to about half a year there. Okay, so you've been working that in all that time. Yeah. So you've, you've established, you've re-established yourself, basically, as, as a person. Coming into society again. Yeah. I was getting myself ready, like, you know, mentally ready to face the music. And by that stage, the cops have made a few announcements at the house, right? Like, we need to see him. Not like you can even call the cops to come and no, not at all. Even though they turned up one night because she had stolen the car. Yeah, so I answer the door, not knowing who it is. Right, two police in uniform. Now you're a guy on the run. What do you think? Yeah, no I'm going in. Oh, what's your name, sir? So I just I pull the name out of thin air, right? Yeah. John Lynn. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was Harun Sufi, <laughs> and I think I chose Harun because it was um. In Beverly Hills Ninja. Oh, that, that was like, Farley. Yeah, that was his name, Harun. <laughs> <laughs> it was like the first name popped into my head. Some random date of birth and yeah, they, they took off. <laughs> I had some petty pettiest, man, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Bad. Petty pettiest, what a word. Okay. After that, I end up, um, I packed up everything. I put it in storage in my parents' house. And I still, but, you know, after everything that I had done, I still wasn't, on paper, redeemable. Yeah. Okay. And I had a really good 
um, family friend who introduced me to the director of Australian NTIS campaign, right? and she was up in Queensland. So I flew up there, taking another risk. Let me ask you a question. At this, to this point, had you um, regressed? Had you gone back? No, not at all. 100%. Once I stopped, that was it. And this has been the way since 2014. Okay. I'm just asking. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you flew to Queensland. Flown to Queensland. I um, I connect with uh, the anti ice campaign up there, and I start rebuilding kind of my resume, my clean resume, so to speak. Right, doing community outreach, come back to Melbourne. You know, how I, long were you there? I was there for about four or five months. Oh, okay. Uh, I was getting trained in um, AOD, like alcohol and other drugs, and screening people. And when I came back to Melbourne, they needed someone to train their managers, like the presenters down here. So I became the presenter manager. This whole time, I'm still on the run. They know all this, though, right? So, but they're in my corner. They go, look, when you're ready to present yourself to the cops, you're going to have an army behind you. And to, and they, they were true to the word, man. That day that I presented myself to the police, the police arrested me. Right? Proper cuffs. Proper cuffs. They took me into the interview room. It was two unit cops, like young guys, right? And, they look fit. I'm like, I've got to get these guys talking. I can't have them standoffish, right? Because if they're standoffish, that means they're not going to be a, very open to the things I have to say to them. So I connected with, to them through training. Like, oh, you look like a, like a decent, yeah. you're in decent shape. Or were you training? It's just happy to be a CrossFit. I'm like, CrossFit. <laughs> <laughs> so I already have insulted him, right? <laughs> and, and, and let's pick these interests. He's like leaning and like, I've got you now. I've, I've got you. We start talking. We start talking about rich, <laughs> rich froning and the mass. <laughs> because oh, you, because you were very well versed in fitness. I'm like, dude, I used to, before you know BC before crack. <laughs> you know, I used to be a personal trainer, and um, we kind of bonded over that. And then he, he asked me the question, right, the inevitable question. Him and his partner goes, "So what happened?" I told him everything, and. Um, he started leaning in more and more and more and more. He's really engrossed in the conversation, right? Yeah. By the end of it, um, the senior sergeant comes in again and goes, look, man, he goes, I appreciate everything that you've done to turn your life around. Um, like, we get that you're not the same person anymore. Like, we really do. Yes, but you need, you need to go find the magistrate, right? And then when the magistrate lets you out, obviously you're going to have to go back to court after a while. And cause, once again, I had eight cases open. Yeah. It's yeah. Not peanuts. It's yeah. Exactly. This whole time, I've had a lawyer on the go, even when I was in Queensland, and this guy was rolling everything into one super case. So he was taking a risk as well, keeping me hidden from the cops. Right? I had really, really good people on my side. Like the universe really looked after me with this one. Yeah. And um, the, the the copper that was meant to be driving me down <laughs> down to the cells, he started getting emotional. Like he had really bonded with me, right? Because I haven't said this to anyone before. Because I feel guilty handing you over. Because I don't want to do this. Yeah. Like, it's okay, man. I'm sitting here trying to cancel this guy now. Like, Jesus Christ. Because I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try whatever I can. Because he drops me off. I was literally in the cells for four hours. Right? Comes back. Goes, we're not opposing bail. Wow. I had, it was just enough time for me to have like a veg. I was a vegetarian back then, right? <laughs> That was part of my like uh, redemption process. I'm not eat anything with a face. Because it was just long enough for you to have a vegetarian pie. Because we came to pick you up again. 
And then came like me trying to rebuild everything legally. So it was a hard weekend, man. Far out. How long did it take for you to, like I said, better the Epsi to be clear of all that legal? It took an extra year or so after that, after me presenting to the cop shop, because there was a lot of things to go through, and there was a lot of charges to knock out. Like there's things that I did, and there's things that I, they insinuated that I did, or they thought that I did. Right? They found a broken salt lamp in the back of my car. I'll give you an example. You know, when the salt breaks up in the car, what does it look like? Like crystals, right? They were trying to get me as commercial quantity of methamphetamine. I'm like, test it. Like, I'm not going to jail for it, you know, because it's not what you're saying it is. You know, test it. Oh, well, we're assuming because you already had half a gram on you that you've admitted to that the rest of it is actually methamphetamine too. I'm like, well, no, no, I'm not going to do five or ten years because you're assuming something is. Because I do, it's a very expensive test. I'm like, I'll pay for it. I've already paid like forty thousand dollars in legal fees. What's the next? Like what? Two thousand? Three thousand? Let's do it. Let's boogie, man. And it wasn't until the, like an hour to go before the prosecution arrived. Right? They go now. We're wiping this charge. We're wiping that charge. Yeah. I stand in front of the magistrate, and this guy was fantastic. The Honourable Mister Tan. I will never forget this guy. Right? He's John Lim standing in front of Mister Tan. <laughs> he stands me up, and he goes, "Look." Because I know you're stressing out, right? Because I'm not imposing a jail sentence today. Because the person that was in front of us on paper is not the person standing in front of me right now. Literally what you set out to do. Yeah. yeah. And I will never forget his words, man. Because you are, you are a testament to recovery. It still gets me kind of emotional because I never thought I'd be that person. I had spent so long hating the person that I'd become that I didn't realize the person I was evolving into. You know? And he goes, if you need to do something with this now, he goes, now's your chance. I thought to myself, like, what do I do? Do I go back to personal training, which is you know, where everything pretty much snow- snowballed from, right? Or do I do something else? So I spent the next year and a half doing volunteer work, community outreach, uh, working with homeless drug addicts, um, Working, I mean, not really working, but you know, doing this kind of stuff for anti-ice campaign, going all all across Melbourne. That's work. Trying trying to mentor young drug addicts, right? That's work. Yeah, yeah. Like I wasn't going to pay for it. it. Doesn't matter. It's still work. Yeah, nuns don't get paid, but they work <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, but I, I, it was it was tiring. At times, it was frustrating because you know who you're dealing with, right? You're dealing with like a younger version of you. And you know all the shit that they're going to pull on you straight away before you, they even start doing it. But you know you got to do it. Like what else? What else? Are you going to let them slip through your hands? No. Especially when you can't help. So that was a that was like my Jesus path, I call it. You know, like the cross you have to bear. Started what six years ago or so? Yeah, it started in 2016. That one. 2014 was when I got clean. 2016, I started working kind of in the field. So how are you doing it now? What's your, what's your go with it all now? Look, at the moment, um, it's all funneling through Clean, Sober and Proud. Now, Clean, Sober and Proud, funnily enough, started as a way of me padding up my clean resume for court. And it just I put my story on there and it just snowballed. Like 10,000 people, 20,000 people, 30,000 people had seen it. People message me left, right, and center, like, I need help, or like, we need a sober co- companion or a coach. 
like, all right, I think it's time that I get qualified. So I went to – the only place that would take me was um, Brace in Frankston, Brace Education. And I had some really lovely mentors there, man. I had um, this <laughs> this uh, lesbian um, professor from – what she was like Deakin or something, one of those universities. And she was like really into the, you know, the whole recovery thing. And then she took me under her wing. She was fantastic. Sharon Morrison. I will never forget this woman. And she was the one of the few people that actually saw me like a person. She goes, man, she goes, you've got really, really strong energy. Like you need to do something with this. And at that stage, I really, okay, it'd been a while since I'd gone back to school, man. Like I was the one of the oldest guys there, right? Not the oldest guy, obviously, but one of. And um, at the same time, my brain wasn't 100%. It wasn't operating at full capacity. And she she dragged me over the finish line there. Yeah, the things that were going wrong in the assignment. She was like, oh, well, you know this, but is there another way you can say it? Like, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, say, you know, this is the kind of situation that you're in. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ticks it off. She goes, you know, the, you know the material. She goes, you know the work. She goes, so just stop stressing out, man. <laughs> just take a breath, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, after I got through that course, I started working in the field a little bit here and there. Um, I ended up doing my placement at a rehab, which ended up being the dodgiest rehab in Melbourne. How do you mean dodgy? Dodgy, okay, well. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been to rehab, so. Okay, after... Most rehabs will have someone there to look after the addicts at all times, right? Even at night time. This place did not. Okay. So they pick up the addicts in the morning. We take them back to, you know, for group therapy down at the office. That would happen until about 3.30, 4 o'clock, and then the addicts will be by themselves from 4 o'clock and onwards. Yeah. That's safe, right? Okay. So obviously these guys would run amok. I, thought, I saw an opportunity there. I'm like, you know what? No, that's not going to happen. If I can't be there at night times, then I'm going to at least disrupt their weekends. So Sunday I would go with a van, pick them up, take them to the thousand steps, just hammer them, exercise, day after day. And then I thought, well, I've got to take care of the afternoon somehow. Right? I've got to set these guys like on a different path. Down the road was training day at one of the gyms. I called them up. I go, listen, man. I go, oh, I'm a activities director at this rehab, right? <laughs> I go, we've got a load of addicts over here with nothing but free time on their hands. I go, can you do me something? He goes, yeah, come on down. He goes, how many people are you bringing with you? I'm like, I don't know, like 15, 20? He goes, I'll do your special. <laughs> <laughs> five dollars, you know, per week, per person, no sign-up fees. Oh, it was like five or nine dollars around. It was, it was cheap. Yeah, fuck it, all. it was really cheap for the facility that you're getting. So we signed every single one of the addicts up, right? A couple of them even signed up to my own, my own bank account because I, I wanted to make sure they go, right? And slowly, the client retention went up. Like, they stayed at the rehab instead of, you know, running amok in the streets at night time. Which, to me, just seemed like, okay, well, these people have never had anyone care about them or the shit that they're going through. Like, they're used to just being in and out of the system, right? We need to keep them occupied. And not just in, during the day by, you know, telling them, putting them in group therapy and telling them, you know, you're a shit person because you did this or... You know, you, you're triggered and everything's going to be all right and just go to a couple of meetings. 
Then we get me started on NA and AA. What's your beef? I'm going to get you my, started. My beef, my beef is putting addicts with other addicts to tell war stories. Doesn't usually end well. Yeah, and it's very dogmatic. Um, the the way that they approach things is once you're an addict, you're supposed to always identify as an addict. I'm not an addict. I'm a person that went through addiction. The moment that you start identifying with that. Uh, part of yourself is the moment that you've lost the battle as far as I'm concerned now that's not to take away anything from the program I mean it's helped hundreds if not thousands of people but there are people that have fallen short because of the fact that it's very rigid like that like the stigma is never going to go away no like say you've you know you've had a problem with alcohol that means that you can never touch alcohol again which is fair enough you know if, if that's your demon but it also means you you know, you can't have anything, anything else. Like you, know, you have a cold, you can't take, let's say, a painkiller. You know, so your head hurts, you can't take a Panadol. You know, you've come out of surgery. You know, you, I've seen people refuse medication even though they're in agony. Like, what's the point? You know what this is doing to you? Like the fact that your pain is going to zenith at some stage, you're going to end up using something harder. Take the medication. Oh, but I'm not going to be clean. According to whom? What's more important in the long term? Right, some superficial label created by a program that was developed in the 1930s. And that's, you know, we've evolved, you know, past that since then. Or looking after yourself right now. You know, and if you do sleep up, it's not the end of the world, man. You can come back. You've done it before, you can do it again. Most of them sleep up anyway. They just don't tell anyone. A lot of our drug addicts at the rehab used to score at NA groups. Yeah? They'd go there, get the sheets uh, signed off, and then they'd find the person that was new there. Because obviously the new guy is the person with the, you know, the closest contact. And the score. That's scary. Yeah. So then, you know, when we do the urinary drug uh, analysis, <laughs> these guys will come back high. Oh, the other uh, council like, oh, we don't understand how it's happening. Well, what do you mean you don't understand? They're running a market at night time. You're sending them to NA meetings uh, to prove that they, you know, they're attending and doing group therapy there because you guys are too lazy, right, to put in a little bit of extra effort. And these guys are running a mark. It's bound to happen. The, when someone's new into recovery... You need to monitor them. Not everyone can go cold turkey. You know, not everyone's got the willpower to stay off drugs. Some people do need to be babied a little bit. You know, you handle with kid gloves. Man, I um a couple of years ago I quit uh caffeine. Oh, right? That's a hard one. Dude, I I from the time I was a kid, I used to buy coffee ice cream. You know, when you go with your parents out to Sunday or whatever and oh, yeah. they'll get bugged all like sweet. And I'd buy coffee-flavored ice cream, and my mom used to lose it. Like, it's not good for you. Like, you can't have it. I love the taste of, of coffee, mm. right? A couple of years ago, I stopped, and I started drinking green tea because um, I was working shift work. I was drinking, like, shots just to stay awake. Yeah. I was, you know, 3 a.m. on a forklift or whatever. Dangerous, you know? Um, I was smashing energy drinks. It was just unhealthy, man. It was bad. I went cold turkey. The first 48 hours was like coming off heroin, man. Mm. My body was in pain. I had 
migraines that I'd never felt in my entire life. What's well, a neurotoxin? And I was taking, dude, I was actually taking codeine to try and knock it out. And I stopped taking codeine a long time before that. Yeah. And I actually went back through the cupboard, like, looking for anything. And I'm like, this isn't working. I was drinking booze, and I just had to go to bed. There was no way known. Now, man, if I have a tiramisu with you right now, in two hours, I'll have a migraine. Because of the coffee content? 100%. And I hate it because I love coffee. I still drink decaf now just for the, you know. That's what I've gotten onto recently, actually. <laughs> Because during my last bodybuilding bodybuilding cut, right, <laughs> there was no energy because, you know, you, your calories drop so low, try, just trying to rip as much body fat off you as possible that you, you're not functioning as a normal person, right? We'd be sitting at the same table with my folks and they'd be just having normal conversation, like thinking to myself, stop talking, just die, <laughs> leave me alone. Like, why do you want to speak to me right now? So naturally, I turned to the coffee to perk up my energy a little yeah. bit because what else am I going to do? Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. Resort to like bodybuilding pharmacology? <laughs> I'm already on testosterone replacement therapy. Like, what else can I do? Yeah. And um, yeah, I was hitting the coffees decently hard, like one, two, three a day. And then you got to... Because you're not eating enough as well, you gotta somehow get your stomach metilium to work, you know, so you can evacuate things in the morning. So coffee again, and um, then I discovered Coles had uh, the decaf. Ta- uh, Tastes exactly like it. Right? So I'm thinking I'm gonna trick my brain, and it worked. It does. And it tastes exactly like it. You know, then I started getting like the low calorie syrups. <laughs> like I can make it taste like salted caramel. <laughs> <laughs> Man, everyone gives me shit for my decaf coffee. Me too, man. <laughs> Why? I love it. I love it. I don't understand. Like, people are getting, what's the point? I'm like, there is a point. Like, I like the flavor, but I don't want to be jacked up. Exactly. I don't know why everyone's so down on decaf, like it's a stigma thing. That's because everyone's a sick home, man. <laughs> you know, like, they, they, they pride themselves on, like, how much coffee they can drink. Oh, That's fantastic. I, I can handle, like... Five cups a day. I'm like, fan, it's, it's great, man. Like, your hand's going to be going like a cobra set by the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, see, that's the thing, man. I went from drinking, like I said, you know, before 10 a.m., three, four cups of coffee plus an energy drink at lunch, you know. It was brutal, man. It, it was just time. I'm just sitting here trying to calculate your caffeine intake right oh, now. It was ridiculous. It'd be like, what, 75 milligrams per cup plus an energy drink, let's say about 100, 120. You'd be sitting in the 600 mark. That's fucked. That's like taking modafinil. Fuck's modafinil. That's that's what the Limitless movie is based on. Oh, I watched that on the plane, man. I can't remember where I was flying to, but I remember watching it on the plane. Modafinil is interesting, man. They're using it as um <laughs> for people with narcolepsy. <laughs> I love it. You got all these fun fat facts for every sort of everything, everything chemical based. <laughs> okay, so how does modafinil work? It's just it just makes you hyper focused on work. Right. Sounds like focusing from The Simpsons when they got part. Basically. Yeah. But I think focusing's more supposed to be Ritalin. Yeah, it was like a Ritalin. They spray the mouse with <laughs> <laughs> it. No, it's just get the desk. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But yeah, let, let's move let's move on from the stimulant topic. Right? <laughs> okay, so um Green tea. <laughs> yes.